So welcome everybody to the safety view. Uh, today is meet the author and I've got co-host Gary Wong joining me today. So it's very exciting. And Gary, who do we have joining us today with the book? Well, we have Rosa Carrillo, who's our, was a co-host. She's actually going to be teaching us, letting us know about her new book or actually the book's been out for some time and hopefully lots of people have copies of it here. So I personally am kind of looking for an overall summary or even hearing, I mean, some of her feedback in terms of what has she heard in terms of readers saying, this really resonated with me or like, this didn't make sense with me here. I need some help here. So kind of looking for some of those insights from Rosa today. That'd be awesome. So her book title, and correct me if I'm wrong, is The Relationship Factor in Safety Leadership. Uh, it's achieving success right. through employee engagement. Right. And I, I've kind of added, I, I wish I had put managers on there too, because it's not enough to have employee engagement. We have to have management engagement. So that's my sure. next book. So that's your takeaway after doing the book. Is that right, Rosa? Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, along the lines of what Gary was saying, you know, first off, I'd kind of like to know, like, where did this idea even come to to create this book in the first place? Like, share a little bit of your history and stuff. Uh, let's see. I started in safety in 1989. So I've seen a lot of changes. I have fell into all the same traps that everybody else fell into, which is that human error causes 99% of accidents uh, and the traditional um, <clears throat> systems root cause analysis. Uh, and I even went through a phase of behavior observation. So I, I tested them all and I landed on culture as being, and at that time it was safety culture even though uh, Ed uh, Shine, who was one of my advisors for my master's thesis, told me there was no such thing as safety culture. I said, I don't care. I'm going to write about it anyway. <laughs> so the arrogance of youth, right? <laughs> I have to agree with um, Ed on this one, Rosa. Well, I do. I do too, but it did take me like a few decades. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah. So, Gary, you were asking for a summary, is that right? I think it would be helpful um, for some people. Um, it is a very comprehensive book, lots of really good stuff in there. That's why I'm still kind of like working my way through it. Um, so, a summary would be really, really cool. I mean, I don't think you need to kind of go through um, kind of like the eight beliefs. People can actually read the book if they want to do that here. But... Are there any beliefs, Rosa, that you feel like, wow, these have kind of like bubbled to the top? Yes, uh, that's a good question. Um, belief number four, which is that every individual is willing and able to contribute to the success of the enterprise has been a key, a key belief in many ways because <clears throat> A lot of people who have trouble connecting uh, with others or employees, uh, they, they think it's mysterious. Like, well, why can't I do that? Uh, and so it's because the, um, there's an almost like transmitted without words that, um, <clears throat> that I, I respect you, you have knowledge, I need your help, and uh, you have something valuable to contribute. So that's what that belief meant to me, and I think it's really resonated because um, it has, <clears throat> I, I do have to say one thing I, that I'm kind of getting distracted because a lot of people are in, if you could let them in uh, tomorrow. I'll leave that to you. Okay. Um, so it started way back with theory Y and theory X. If you'll all remember, McGregor said that there were two types of managers. Theory, y, theory y managers felt that people were, were willing to give their all at work. 
if they found it in their best interest to do so. And he said, theory X managers seem to feel that they have to be on the spot controlling, managing, because people just naturally will slack off if the manager is not supervising. And what we found, uh, and where McGregor was working at that time, which was Procter & Gamble, was that when people were empowered, uh, they were put into self-directed work groups and they did their own work planning. They did, um, they had team meetings where they would plan uh, what they were going to do for the day and what improvements needed to be made. And what they found was that that particular plant far out um, produced any of the other Procter & Gamble camp, uh, plants. And not only that, but they, didn't, they had much fewer accidents. They, they were much more profitable. In fact, when they would report the quarterly earnings and profit and loss statement, they had to start to lie about their numbers because nobody believed them when they reported their actual savings uh, and profit margins. So that's the thing. And then Procter & Gamble did spread this out to a few more plants, but after that, they stopped because new management came in and said, oh, the workers are spending too much time in meetings and talking to each other. And they got rid of that, and that killed the program. So it's interesting you, you mentioned that program, Rosa, because in one of the places that I worked a long time ago, <laughs> um, Market, Market Probe, a, um, a president of mine, um, um, John Wharton, brought in the Procter Gamble um, program. And it was phenomenal. It was such a different way of doing work. And it really... Um, brought an opportunity for the more seasoned, um, experienced uh, professionals to be working in, in line with the, the, at that time, I was just um, um, a trainee. I was just coming into the workplace. And so because, like you were saying, we were having these discussions, we were expected to think, expected to be part of the thought process and included, it really pushed us to think um, better, to be, be higher than we thought we could ourselves ever. And, and that is one of the things that you talk about in your book about, you know, inclusion and belonging. And you and I have talked about um, exclusion. And so in your opinion, and after going through the book, how does this really impact health and safety? And why should we care? About the inclusion and exclusion? Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah, well, there's a very, very, um, that was such an important part of my book. And I would like to share with all of you that uh, Gary asked me, well, what inspired me? Oh, Tamara asked me what inspired me to write it. And really, it was the inclusion and exclusion piece, because I, um, I grew up, uh, I was born here, but I grew up in Mexico. And when I was in Mexico, I had to hide the fact that I was um, American. And when I was in the U.S., I was ostracized because of the color of my skin. So I had to figure out you know, how to fit in, and no one really could guide me on it. Uh, so I want to read something to you from, uh, from my book that... Uh, Ricky uh, is at the heart and probably, you know how, I know when I read books, I don't always read every page because I go to the parts where, oh, this sounds really interesting and I read that. Um, so this is the, the last uh, two paragraphs, uh, three paragraphs in my book. As a child, I lived in the USA and Mexico and was ostracized by both cultures. In the U.S. because of my dark skin, and in Mexico because I was born in the USA. I am fortunate that my cultural background helped me to develop a lifetime, a deep sensitivity to the emotions and feelings that trigger exclusion. It took me a lifetime to articulate that the problem of exclusion goes way beyond skin color, gender, sexual orientation, or religion. 
It is a problem that permeates every failed initiative and organization. A huge part of the challenge is that most of the time we are not aware that we are excluding someone or a group. I am not discounting the painful reality that some groups and individuals have suffered more exclusion because of racism and discrimination. I am thinking that in recognizing how exclusion affects all of us, we could then feel a deeper understanding of why this condition deprives humanity of access to so much creativity and innovation. This understanding, along with the knowledge that our brains are hardwired for both the need to belong and fear those who are different, could move the conversation away from blame and motivate us to strengthen our ability to be more inclusive. Now, in your book, Rosa, you also talk about um, self-protection from exclusion. Uh, say more about that. So, so you were talking about how often um, withdrawal is, is one of our own self-protection measures that we use for, for when we are being um, excluded or ostracized in the workplace. And I think that's very important to also bring forward because often I hear when somebody is withdrawing, um, the, 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 the team is talking about how that person just doesn't want to be bothered with anybody else. And I think as safety professionals, you know, that mental health piece, we have to be very mindful that in fact, withdrawal can be as a sign that other things are going on. Good point, Tamara. Yeah, there's a um, kind of a, a common belief um, that silence means agreement when actually it doesn't. Silence is actually one of the forms of withdrawal uh, because people won't speak up and say what's on their mind. Um, so they're, they're, it's, it's a continuum of withdrawal. Oh, now you can see my hand here. I broke my wrist. <laughs> That's a whole nother story. I'm writing an article about it because it was just so classic, you know. Let the teacher beware. <laughs> Okay, where was I? The continuum of withdrawal. So uh, the most peaceful way to withdraw is silence. And then there's a continuum like the constant complainer the, uh, and so forth, all the way to violence. Violence is withdrawal because it's like I've tried everything. Now I'm going to, you know, lash out and let people know that I've been excluded. And we can see that in the U.S. right now with uh, the demonstrations that we've been experiencing, right? People are like, uh, you haven't listened to us for decades. Now we're going to uh, wake you up and let you know that this is a serious problem. So, you know, uh, I know some organizations have gotten to that point as well, because that's where sabotage comes from, uh, strikes, you know, labor strikes, and so forth. So what you want to do as a safety practitioner is notice those people that are quiet, not participating, and have a conversation. And of course, my book is all about uh, the fact that conversations are the vehicle uh, for shaping the culture because that's where people get uh, their information on what's important here. If I'm having conversations with you about what do you need, how can I help you, uh, hey, you know, I noticed that you were doing the work this way, tell me, um, you know, why, how that's working for you or not working for you, the person feels included. It's that simple. I care what you think. I care about your feelings. Uh, I care about you as an individual person. I can't exaggerate the importance of that because when you see great leaders, uh, they make it look so easy. And we don't really um, realize that at the back of that, what is the, what is the hidden 
uh, element. The hidden element is what you believe about people. What do you believe about people? Do you think that they are basically well-intentioned? Or do you believe that everyone's out for themselves? There's a term that's, um, is emerging to kind of captures what we've been talking about here. And it's called um, epistemic justice or epistemic injustice. On the chat, um, I just posted the Wikipedia. And it's, it's an area that some of you may know that um, I'm involved in um, collecting of stories. And of course, relationships is all about conversations and stories. And what we're saying is that the kind of tools we're using in sense making enables epistemic justice because people have an opportunity to share their authentic voice and they can do it anonymously or whatever they want to do it here, but they have that opportunity to express what they want to say. And therefore it's this thing we recall now is you know, psychological safety. So definitely what we're seeing in particular relationships is we're kind of going beyond just physical safety in the safety world, psychological safety. You know, the idea is that Amy Edmondson has put forward here. I'm finding that to be more and more profound and more and more people want to talk about that psychological safety now. Well, yes, absolutely. And of course, that's one of the themes in my book, psychological safety, because I found that, and I don't know if you found this to be true as well out there, uh, that some people feel that, psych that psychological safety means that you have to baby people, you know, that, that you can't uh, give critical feedback. And that is absolutely not true because when you have psychological safety, that's when you can give performance feedback. If you give it without psychological safety, there's two things that will happen. One is the person may not even hear what you're saying because inside their head, they're running the tape of, well, you know, this person doesn't care about me or this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, and uh, they're also thinking about how they're going to respond or they won't say anything, as we said, because silence is a way of, of giving you feedback. Uh, and so the, when you have the psychological feedback, people will tell you in real time, well, you know, that doesn't really make sense because when I go out and do this, this is how it happens. And you have a conversation. Tamara has a, has a good saying that I like, which is um, treat people like adults. <laughs> it really comes down to it. Treat people like adults. So I did also want to um, invite people to, to raise their hand and talk. Um, we do have everybody muted right now because we had some background noises. But if you, if you have a question, um, can you either raise your hand or say, I, I want to ask something in the chat so that I know to unmute you? That would be really great. Yeah, or unmute yourself. <laughs> yeah, or yourselves? Yeah. Jim, let's see. So, um, yeah, Jim, it's so great that, that you're on. Can you speak to the need to accommodate the prevalent approach to managing by procedural control and prescription and formulating a strategy to move towards a relationship-centered approach? Ah, excellent, excellent question. Um, yes, so a safety professional is expected to know the OSHA guidelines uh, and uh, to uh, follow the procedures and keep the company from getting in trouble, right? In all of those, uh, in all of those areas. And the traditional way to do that is through uh, procedures uh, and policies, etc. How do you move away from that? I think my, my friend, uh, there's a couple of things I'm going to recommend to you. One is that Sam Goodman did a presentation yesterday with the Paradigm Human Performance Group that was really outstanding in terms of how safety professionals get pigeonholed into 
certain roles and responsibilities. You, you're supposed to be the expert on these OSHA laws. And, uh, and, and it's hard for people to, to get out of that. Um, so Andy Barker also does a presentation where he talks about taking, including management, which I love because I had, when I wrote my book, that's why I said, you know, the inclusion, I have to add managers to my title because managers can feel excluded as well. So uh, if you go to the, uh, to the managers and ask them for their stories and ask them to start collecting stories about what worked well out in the workplace. Now, in his case, he asked the CEO to start doing that. Start asking your direct reports for safety stories. Don't ask for numbers. Don't ask for statistics. Ask them for a story of their encounter in the field, uh, in interacting, having a conversation, noticing what's going right. And so at the very top of the site, they began to exchange those stories. And that began, um, as Andy Barker tells the story, he only wrote, has written one procedure during his entire time with his company. It's all done through stories. And I have to tell you, it's so true that when you tell a story, people understand so much more, so much mm -hmm. more, the subtlety, the, the reasoning, uh, what's in it for them, you know, why other people have found that it works. And you overcome a tremendous amount of resistance so that the actual um, lifeblood of, you know, how to do things safely here is now carried in the stories and that's when it becomes really part of the culture and I don't like the word culture that much because it kind of turns it into this you know amorphous um, mysterious thing of ooh the culture you know what the heck do we do about culture culture is the stories that we tell about how things work and it's the way we interact so if, I, uh, if we are interacting with respect, uh, with inclusion, we are creating our culture in that very moment. The moment that we start treating each other poorly uh, and start excluding, we're changing the culture. Now, Rosa, we do have a few people who have come on camera and I think they have some questions or thoughts to share. Thank you for stopping me. I could talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Jim. I, I would say to, to summarize what I heard, uh, the the organizations that are uh, primarily managing by procedural control and, and prescription uh, are are going to be slowly persuaded to focus more on relationships by the simple practice of getting into the field and, and interacting and uh, gathering stories and showing the value of, of those stories and managing the risks. Yes. Okay. Um, and I, I, the other part of that is that um, when you're, when you're, in having these kinds of conversations and people are interacting, don't forget, Jim, if you talk with one person and have a positive experience, that that person has a positive experience, they then tell another person about it, right? Uh, the opposite, if you have a negative experience, they're going to talk about that with, with their peers. So what happens is that uh, so many of the procedures that we, that we have to come up with are cures for things that didn't work, right? We have to keep improving the procedures. We have to keep updating the procedures. Uh, and a lot of that just goes away when people are doing it in real time uh, and, and, and communicating with each other about what needs to be done. That need for procedures diminishes. And you know, if you're introducing something new, some new technology, naturally you have to uh, have some guidelines around it. Uh, but if, this, if the equipment has been there for a while or, you know, it's something that people have done for a while, 
if, uh, if people aren't following procedure, if, if things aren't working, what you need to do really is have an in-depth conversation and then consider, do we have to change this procedure or add another procedure? Makes sense? Like yeah. I'd like to address Lauren's question about what do you do with a person that's quiet mm -hmm. and isolates themselves here? Um, the worst thing you can do is try to force it. I mean, it's, I mean, knowledge is always volunteered. It's, it's not, it's, you can't demand it here. But I think there's also an understanding too of the different sort of family cultures. For example, I'm Asian. And I knew that when I was growing up there as a child, I had no voice. It was always the elders, the seniors that talked. You know, and even though I put up my hand, in fact, that's one of the things that we do is that you've got to put up your hand so that you can be acknowledged and then say, okay, you can ask your question here. So I don't know if that particular person's isolated has built up around that earth. So it's all about, again, the paradigms and the beliefs that maybe they have to kind of overcome in order to be part of the organization culture here. So there's no kind of one size fits all. It's really on an individual, person-by-person -person basis. And they choose to invite themselves, if you like, and be part of the conversation. Yeah, Gary. Uh, you know, <clears throat> when, uh, when somebody is silent, um, it could be because they don't like to speak in front of groups, right? Uh, but you wouldn't know that unless you had a conversation with them, have a private conversation, get to know them, and, and I'm talking about if you don't know about their family, if you don't know uh, things that they're interested in outside of work, start there, start there, and then say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to get, uh, you know, people on the team to um, share more of their experience or whatever it is you're trying to achieve, um, and uh, what would make it easier for you? And that's when they will tell you, oh, you know, I don't, I don't like to speak up in the group. Uh, well, then how would you like to contribute because your information is really valuable? And I had one employee uh, tell me uh, that they, they preferred to write notes and mm -hmm. have those in ahead of time. So, I mean, I see Tamara's nodding her head. So yeah, yeah people participate in different ways. Uh, and so we can't make an assumption that they're quiet because um, they feel excluded. We have to I, and well, and I think also, you know, the um, we have often fallen to the assumption that somebody's silent or quiet because they're choosing to do so, and and you can also sometimes see that um, when when we allow that to keep going on, whether the person is choosing to to be silent or being excluded we're losing out in gaining the insights and the knowledge of that person has. So the question is, as, as leaders in health and safety professionals, how can we help kind of nurture or provide whatever people need in order to feel safe to share their ideas? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, one of the things about the virtual uh, era here is that people can put their questions into the chat. You know, they don't have to uh, speak up if they don't want to. Uh, and I, I don't know if you can even do that anonymously. Do you, can you, Tamara, can you anonymously put a question on the chat? I'm not sure. Uh, I think there might be a function for that. Yeah, that but it, but yeah. I want to touch back on the concept that, you know, I understand what you're seeing from a child, from growing up in a, in a, in a household, Gary, where um, we, the, the big theme being told to us our child children are to be seen and not heard and mind your own business like that was the whole mm -hmm. childhood right up to when i was in my 20s the thing mm -hmm. is is that in the workplace that doesn't is not appropriate we don't hire children right <laughs> so if somebody is internally battling because they don't feel they can be their adult self at work I think there needs to be more discussion about what is going on and how can we create an environment where everybody can contribute as their adult being. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, good point. Yeah. And, and the cultural element that uh, Gary brought up, let's, let's say in Latin America, um, you're not supposed to speak up to your boss or disagree. Uh, and that, so that's a huge challenge, being able to create a safe space uh, in a very uh, top-down society. So one of the things uh, that I've seen work uh, is that you then have to make it a rule for people to, <laughs> to speak out. So, you know, you have to work within the culture. If, That's if, even in North America that we have that industrial concept that the people at the top have more valuable things to contribute than, well, look at that language right there. The people at the top. I shouldn't even be saying that. Bad on me, right? <laughs> that we even do this division in that way in our language usage about those who are in the the um, executive suite and those who are in the workforce. Like, how do we even? I think language usage is one thing that, like, I noticed that with my son, is that he's 15 and their language usage is very different than our generation in so many ways. Even when they're talking about gender, they don't say he and she, they say they, mm -hmm. and then the person's name. So that's an interesting thing about how we as a generation mm -hmm. use language. And does that make a difference? Is that a piece of the puzzle here? Well, I, I, it's not only generational, but even uh, within, um, I, I want to say, depends on if you're in a profession, for example, if you're an engineer, you're going to communicate a lot differently than someone in the crafts, right? Um, so you do have to be aware that different cultural groups communicate in different ways. And it's not just... Uh, uh, you know, what country you're from, it's, it's how you've been educated. And I saw a question about education. I don't know who it was from. Yeah, from Korea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Korea, do you want to unmic yourself and I may just share your thoughts that you put on the chat? And then Gary, I saw David also afterwards, if you want to bring him in. Okay. So I think Korea doesn't want to. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> volunteer, right? It's all volunteer, so. Yeah, exactly, Korea. Uh, I, that looks but, um, Portuguese. Is that a Portuguese name? Yeah, okay. Well, right. let, let me share one comment about the education system, of course, going up to elementary school. I always remember we used to get two marks on the report card. One was for what you achieved in the thing. The other mark, one was in citizenship. And I would, get my report card and I instead of getting a G an N or a U good normal or unsatisfactory I'd often get a U and my mother would just get so pissed with me like why are you getting a U in the parent teacher conferences she learned that's because Gary asks too many questions he disrupts us why can't he be like Bill who just sits in the corner and says nothing you know and so like, wham, 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 Gary, stop asking questions. Well, thank God I ignored my mother because I wouldn't probably be where I am today. See, sometimes you have to disobey the authorities. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think there's another term for that. It's called constructive irritant. Here we are. No, That's where we are. Positive deviant. A positive deviant. So we have another raised hand here, I see. Mm -hmm. ah. Hi there. Hi. Yes. Hi. My name is uh, Diane, Diane Chadwick-Jones. I work in hi. BP. Um, I've been working in this field for about 15 years. And I have actually, Rosa, been to one of your seminars in the HSE Global series with Paul Clark. And I'm really excited about your book because it's a, very much a, a kind of a description of the, the practice that I'm actually carrying out in BP and that I've been carrying out in BP for a number of years. Um, and I suppose my question, this is a question to the group, right? It's not, it, this is not directed at, at you, Rosa, um, okay. specifically, because it's kind of a really nerdy question. <laughs> okay, so, so I've done a number of statistical studies, and I've even published one, which uh, links um, the, the relationships 
between the, the supervisor and the workforce, okay, and how they show respect and care and how they um, have the, you know, the, this, uh, this kind of the, the relationship and the, be able, the ability to speak up and the ability to not jump to blame and all those, those kind of things, that those link in a, in a really strong way um, longitudinally over a number of years in, in, in different assets in BP, okay? And although I've, I've done it a number of times over the years, I've just published one paper, which is about one snapshot in time. What I kind of get back quite a lot, and I was presenting this to another oil company last week, is, well, actually, you haven't published longitudinal studies. Where are the longitudinal studies? And, and I have to say, there are a lot of them. I almost feel like I want to... Uh, kind of write a research paper on the number of longitudinal studies that prove what what it is that you're describing in your book because what you, you're doing is you're going right and then so this is it and we go on and we do it you know you're you're talking about the how-to rather than the the why but does anybody have any thoughts on that because I've got to say it's driving me bananas uh, to be asked you know, on and on and on well you know, Diane, although you've done it for 15 years in BP, you've only published one paper and it's a snapshot in time. Sorry, very long question there, excuse me. Not at all, no. I love the question. <clears throat> Let's see, so who that, I think Gary, you've published a lot, haven't you? Well, I've, I've published a bit here. Um, answer your question, Diane, is, um, it's an interesting one because I've actually stopped, read, stopped reading business books, a lot of them. I used to just, you can see my background here, that whole shelf there is full of business books here. Right. Because there was a recipe that was being done here. Oh, look what I did in this one company. You follow these five steps here and poof, you can be the expert yeah. leader as I am here. And that is the, actually the, if you like, the book publication sort of industry that we've grown up around here. Um, one of the things I learned working with Dave Snowden in Cognitive Edge oh, is yeah. let's go back to being theory informed. And, and that's why I think, and I'll promote Rose's book, Rose's book actually is research based. It's theory yeah. informed. And Rosa, you go into complexity science, you go into neuroscience. I mean, these are things there's a lot of hard research on. I always remember Sidney Decker saying, you know what, safety is a social science. Mm -hmm. So, and you, you really can't do like the Hawthorne experiment and try to repeat that over and over again, because once that's done, that's it. So sadly, social science suffers from the fact that you can't go back and repeat it over and over and over again here. So what we try to do is we look at natural sciences and everything else here, because nature has got that figured yes. out. We can always fall back on that here. So these people that are kind of looking for like, oh, where's the evidence? Where's the big research here? I kind of say, just look all around you. It's there. You just have to see it because nature has figured it out. Hmm. So Gary, are you, are you saying that um, when, you, when you publish something about one company, then a lot of people dismiss it because it was, you know, it, just because it happened there doesn't mean it can happen everywhere. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, that, and this is, you know, like I think what I particularly, I'm, I'm an engineer and I learned was trained on hypotheses, scientific method and inductive reasoning. You know, if we can do this, we can project into the future, then that will happen here. But what we understand now is that the ordered mechanistic bureaucratic system is a very causal if-then relationship system. Yeah. I think the area that we're really into now with relationships is what we call the complex system, or if you like the subset, complex adaptive systems here, and they are dispositional. So what does that mean? That means that we can't always guarantee that people will do what they do. Right? Because of all these factors, as we've just talked about here, culture, that you're growing up here, why are you silent? Why are you so noisy, Gary? All these things means that 
we don't know how people are going to behave. There is a tendency to think they're going to go that way, but we can call that as an absolute truth. And that's why we can't, pre we can't really predict, in some cases, what the future safety is going to be. We just have to work from the present, as we say, and just let it evolve here. And I think those one-to-one -one or one-to-many or many-to-many -many conversations we have in relationships is really important here. And the yeah, last point, the big important. difference between the order system is it's all about the parts. It's the pieces. We can break them down, do reductionism, fix them, put them back together. They should work. Over in the complex domain, it's all about relationships, right? And the interactions between them here. And then yeah. if we try to break up into the different agents here, we lose the relationships. And that's the most important piece. Exactly. And that was the contribution of Tristan Emery way back the famous experiments in the coal mines when they decided to improve production by putting in new technology, which destroyed the relationships because now everybody was just working as an individual. Uh, and, uh, but we have to keep learning that lesson over and over again. Uh, and I think the other part, Diane, is, is like, I've, I really don't believe in benchmarking anymore. You know, benchmarking was really big. Let's go look at, you know, what so-and-so is doing. Um, well, that's fine. But you cannot transfer what they're doing in one place to another, not even within the same company. Because the, as Gary was saying, you know, that, that complex system is going to take each element and do something else with it. So I do, uh, I do empathize with you <laughs> because even with all the research that I did on relation, you know, relationship-centered leadership, uh, people do not automatically say, oh, you know, that makes complete sense. I better get out on the floor and start having these conversations. No. The first response is, what? I'm too busy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so it's, and even though it should seem instinctive and it, although it makes sense and when people, of course, when they do it, it changes their lives. Um, yeah. But the level of resistance is uh, interestingly hard. And it makes me think that I might actually write a, um, a, 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 a little paper on uh, just gathering all the different studies because there have been so many. Yes, yes, I think that would be great. And then, and then you could weave in your story. Yeah. And this is how that played out in my company. That would be great. I love it. Let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'd I'm be interested in seeing that data and yeah. yeah. in, in your research because I'd be so interested in seeing if um, what are the, the differences you're also seeing globally in different regions as well as between like generations too. That would be interesting to see, do like what are the different styles being used? Yeah. I'm with you Rosa. I mean, <clears throat> I did a lot of benchmarking before, kind of stopped that now, because <clears throat> that's kind of like over in the ordered system where we have targets and KPIs and we try to achieve these things. And they're always shooting for some predicted future state that may or may actually even, not even exist here. So, <clears throat> so now we shift in the complex domain. And one of the best ways that we do, we don't measure, we monitor. And what mm -hmm. do we monitor? We monitor how stories are shifting yeah. from here to there, because it's easy to go to the, to the executives and kind of going, what stories would you like to hear? And if you have been gathering stories, they can read these stories, go like, we love these stories. We don't like those stories here. So then you can ask the intervention question, so what constraints, policies, standards, rules, whatever, might you change so you get more stories like these, fewer mm -hmm. stories like that? Yep, and you bypass so much linear stuff because relationships are not linear. Mm -hmm. and you can't, we can't deal with them in the same way that we deal with a piece of equipment. You know, you adjust the equipment and then you know that it's going to work right well there's we can't adjust people as you know they have to adjust themselves yeah you have to be able to pivot yeah that reminds me can i tell a little joke mm -hmm. 
How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Anyone? Any guesses? It only takes one, but the light bulb has to want to change. It only takes one psychologist. As long as the light bulb wants to change. If it doesn't want to change, then no number of psychologists is going to help. <laughs> but anyway, so it's the same with, um, with consultants and, uh, you know, approaches and, oh, let's try this, let's try that. Uh, what, you know, think about, oh, thank you, Veronica. She thinks I'm cute. Okay, not cute. <laughs> that was cute. Um, yeah, because uh, I'm used to people laughing, and you, when you don't have that immediate response, you think, okay, let's change the subject. Uh, <laughs> but um, now I even forgot what I was going to say. Oh, okay, somebody else talk. Well, you know, it's interesting because when I was working at, at Intellects, for the first time, I was really immersed into more of a younger workforce that came with these really interesting ideas. And I was on a team with those of us who were more of a Generation Xer. And it was very interesting how um, in order to do um, their project planning and their thinking, they had a totally different way where they gamified everything. And at first, those of us who were, you know, from our group were like, what are they doing? This is such, this is such craziness. They're like wasting an hour of my time, right? That's how we went into it mm -hmm. until we, we went through, a, through sessions. And then we realized that they were making work really fun. And in the process, they were getting all these wild ideas. Like they were like, one of their questions would be like, okay, so if you had like a billion dollars, what solution would you create? And of course we're looking at there, but we don't have a billion dollars. Like, why are we doing this? Like at first we didn't understand what they were doing, but they, they were laughing and giggling and they were like writing all this, like they had the relationship going in their group. And then once we kind of tried out this new different way that they were doing it, we started also laughing and giggling and seeing like we had some really amazing ideas coming out. So sometimes it's also, you know, opening yourself up that just because people are doing things extremely differently doesn't, doesn't mean that it's not a wonderful thing. No, absolutely. A um, couple of things. Uh, one is uh, that's a great way to build relationships is having fun. That's why we do icebreakers at, at seminars or uh, when we go and, I used to really look down on them and now I love them because I realize that what you're doing is you're bypassing a lot of the natural protections and divisions that strangers, when you walk into a room, it's really hard for me because I'm an introvert and the icebreaker facilitates my making connections. It gives me permission to make connections. So that, that's really a great thing. The other thing I wanted to say was talk about is sharing your story. Mm -hmm. That is probably for me the most powerful intervention that, uh, that you can practice with your team, with your group, with your people that you work with. What that means is that you are opening, if you're familiar with the Johari window, they, they talk about the open window where you're, you feel free to talk about something. You have your hidden window where you, you know, I'm not going to tell everybody that, you know, that I used to be an alcoholic and that's a good idea not to tell anybody that. Uh, then you have uh, the blind window, things that other people see about you that you don't see about yourself, like you talk too much or you're always pulling on your hair, <laughs> something like that. Um, and then, of course, the unknown window, which is that there are things we don't know about ourselves and other people don't know about ourselves. Uh, and a great example of that for me was about um, that I had a talent for painting. I didn't discover it until I was 45 and then I couldn't stop painting afterwards. Uh, so when you um, tell your story and you reveal, you open that window, you are actually giving people permission to open 
their window further. Oh, they were willing to take that risk, that chance. And again, you have to be judicious, but I opened the window on myself and what I read from, from my book, you know, that I was born here, lived in Mexico, suffered discrimination in both places. And that's how it happened that I grew up to be sensitive to exclusion. And because I'm a teacher, I wanted to pursue, hey, how can we make this better for other people? You know, why, why, do, we, why, why do people have to suffer exclusion? They don't, we don't have to do it that way. There are other ways to do business. So I, um, I really advise you to try it. Uh, and then just even like if you're having a team meeting, you say, today we're going to share a little bit about ourselves, a story about ourselves, and you can pick some area or, or they can pick an area, you know, something that you've really never fully talked about. And things come out like, oh, you know, I play in a jazz band, uh, and you never even knew that that person could play an instrument, right? Uh, or... Oh, I did this with a, with a group at a college, the executive uh, group in, in one of our local colleges here. And it was a, an all-day thing, which is a little different than, than a meeting. But in the all-day meeting, they, they revealed uh, about half the staff was gay. And nobody knew. Everybody thought they were the only one. Okay, so that's on the extreme side. And it takes a long time to build up the trust for that to happen. But just on a uh, micro scale, um, getting people to talk, you know, today we're going to share something about ourselves and it has to be something that you haven't really shared about at work um, that you think that is important to you. That totally would change the tone of the meeting. So how many of you are willing to try that? Do you think it would work or not? Mm -hmm. Doubts? Yeah. Oh, go into the chat and say, no, we could never do that at my meeting because I'm not in charge anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so are anybody, is anybody putting anything in the chat room? Yeah, we do that at Safepedia. You do. But it's natural, you know, like, you know, like one of my bosses, he, he, like, he found out that I, I lived in, in a way and stuff. And then he found out that another person had done that. I lived in Rotan in different places. And then he got thinking about it. And now he's also, uh, after doing some research and stuff, he just shared with us that he's going to take his family and go down and live a, for a year somewhere because he's always wanted to do it him and his wife and you know they started talking about it and he's like we're just gonna go do it so and then like other things too but it, it's really great right because you see a different dimension of somebody that you wouldn't have before jim do you do you uh, practice that at your um in, in your work to a degree yes how do you um, practice it well by introducing the idea and then asking people to weigh in with what they think. Really, it's a, it's a conversation starter. Okay, so you introduce a topic and then you ask people to weigh in. Mm -hmm. And is that successful for you? It depends on your measure. Well, I mean, for you internally, I'm asking you in your heart, do you feel, yes. oh, that's working? Yes, it is. Because, um, you know, we, we frequently deal with folks that are pretty set in their ways. Mm -hmm. and, and we're asking for them to, to open up and to consider how they're interacting and um, getting some self-reflection, some self-examination uh, is really where I think the, the primary benefit is. Yeah. And do you demonstrate that yourself first? I attempt to. You know, being, being vulnerable, um, mm -hmm. sharing um, doubts, some uh, potential um, less than stellar 
approaches and, and how uh, learning after the fact helped us and those types of things. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. It, it's not an easy thing to do. Like, it's easy for me because I've been doing it, you know, for many years. But when, when I started, it wasn't that easy. Are people going to judge me? Am I going to, uh, you know, lose credibility? Uh, so I wouldn't start with something really big. I would start with something, something small and even have some fun with it, like um, uh, Tamara was talking about. Okay. So, Veronica, did you want to tell talk about yours? Uh -huh. You have to unmute yourself. There. Yeah, I just did. Thank you. Uh, I, I work in insurance. So my role as a risk control consultant is my interactions with clients is sometimes very brief. So my opportunities to be able to spend time, for example, if I'm there to do training with uh, employees or with supervisory groups, sometimes I don't have a lot of time to cover the subject matter and also introduce this personal side. And, and, and maybe I should reword that in that I'm not comfortable with it. And maybe that's why it doesn't come easily to me. Um, I don't know. I don't always know the audience. Sometimes I'll walk in cold and I'll know one person of the organization perhaps, but sometimes they'll turn me over to a group that I've never met before. So I find that to be, um, I don't know, a little difficult to open up and maybe share something personal. Uh, what I have done at times is, depending on the subject, is release uh, stories that or experiences from other clients that they have gone through anonymously, of course, and say, well, this happened at another client. Um, this is why... Um, this safety issue is important because this is what occurred. But um, I'll be honest, it's a, a little bit difficult for me to be able to do that on a, on a, about myself, but maybe relating to other clients' experiences is my way around that. Yeah, that's a good, I'd like to open it up, maybe Diane, because you have been using the Johari window, I think, um, can you, yeah, identify we've had with, a, a can great you identify time. with Veronica here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, so we found it, well, in fact, we've used the Johari window as a very helpful tool to explain that there are things that are hidden which are not intentionally hidden. Um, so that fits with the you know, understanding of, 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 of system dynamic thinking, that it's, it's not that people are intentionally doing it, it's just that both the leaders and the workforce are not seeing this thing but I come in from outside um, and I go oh oh my goodness I mean you know have you have you have you noticed that um, that you know th this particular issue around risk and, and lifting for example is um, kind of not quite how they do it in other places but that's not that's not the point the point here is more about the showing of vulnerability I mean because that opens up the whole conversation to learning because I you know I say well I did that incident investigation and I look at it now and I realize that uh, you know there was too much focus on the individual and that in fact I should have dug deeper and asked more whys on the underlying issues that influence that that individual and you know I know now what I know knowing now what I knowing then now what I should have known then, you know, that we were jumping to blame. And, you know, this, we, but now we know when we analyze our data, we can actually see that most times when it looks like the individual, it's not. It's local rationality. It's the, the many different things that influence people on the day and the many different things that came before. So that kind of vulnerability in leadership and explaining, and we've done this with our senior leadership and got them to transmit this to transmit this understanding of incident investigation and moving away from blame by saying that they were wrong and they'd done, they'd done wrong and they did wrong things, which you can imagine in BP, we've done a lot of wrong, considering we've got the Texas City explosion and the Deepwater Horizon and the Alaska spill plus a lot of other things, right? Mm -hmm. um, climate change, obviously. So we, we're in that mode of, of massive vulnerability because we are, you know, we're shifting 
to a totally different way of, of being in terms of, for example, renewable fuel. And we've shift, shifted enormously in terms of safety leadership. But this whole idea of vulnerability and, and, and a, a being open about your kind of your darkest, deepest, darkest business secrets um, and the things that you're ashamed of, we, we are, have had the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And it shocks everybody. Yeah, it's impressive, Diana. Very impressive. Well, now, hey, uh, it's not that easy, and, I, and I've only managed easy. to get—I've only managed yeah. to get a few people to do it, including the CEO. So the, all you need is a few impressive. people, by the way. It's just to say, and as soon as you get the CEO doing, everybody goes, "Oh, oh my God, I can say." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I am conscientious of time. We are at the twelve o'clock mark, okay. so we will have to wa- wrap it up. Oh my gosh, time went by so fast. I just want to say one thing to Veronica that um, basically uh, it's okay to use the same story over and over again. So you have to get comfortable with what you want to share to make yourself vulnerable, but it does have to be personal. So it can't, it can't be about somebody else. You can do that later. The first one is here's how this information impacted my life. This is what happened. So, so think about that and then use, use that to open the room. It could be as simple as, you know, I never get used to walking into a room and not knowing anybody and, and having to present, right? Uh, so something that you're experiencing in the moment. Uh, Can I just add on that? Yeah, I, I, we've got one leader, the one who started it off, mm-hmm. who has told the same story every single time since 2015. So absolutely, Rosa, what you said to Veronica, you can just use the same, because you can call it my pivotal moment. My yeah. pivotal moment when I understood that I was wrong and that, that, that telling people to follow the rules or they should, be pun- that they should be punished was wrong. And that what I should have been doing was telling people to follow the rules and if they couldn't follow the rules to speak up or, and I would help them. You know, yeah. and, and so you can just use the same one every time and people love yeah. it every time. So don't worry about having to be creative. It's just all about the thing that's really important to you. The thing that made the, the, the epiphany in your life. There was, a, there was a point that Dave Snowden um, shared with us where he was talking to his CEO and the CEO was saying, well, well what stories should I share, share? And Dave says, no, no, no. What you want to do is take actions so people can tell stories about you. Right? Well, that's, that's great from the CEO. Stories to everybody yeah. else. Yeah, I like that. However, uh, in Veronica's case, it's different than, than that, right? Gary? I don't know. Um, one of the things I've suggested in the chat is um, I've over time gathered what I call my signature stories. Mm-hmm. You know, ones that you've said, you know, I can tell for the next 10 years and I just got to make sure that I haven't repeated them to the same people. You know, you've heard that already, Gary. And typically you can figure that kind of out. But when you share that, you can see the kind of like the light bulbs going on because Rosa, the light bulb want to go on. So. Yeah, you do. You do. You do. Yeah. I, I just I just have a little bit different approach because I believe in the personal connection uh, because we are all connected and we can do a whole separate talk on why emotions are contagious. But when I go up to do a keynote or a, uh, you know, or, or a workshop, I want to connect on a personal level uh, because that opens people up completely different than a success story somewhere else. And, and I totally agree with, you know, uh, help, you know, you want people to tell you stories and you want people to take action because that's a great follow-up, but think about any um, charismatic person, anyone you're going to vote for in an election, you feel like you know them personally a little bit you know a little bit more about them you understand them a little bit more so i i, I don't think they're opposed gary i think they they kind of work together so well i am I'm, I'm gonna have to cut us off because we are t- uh, almost 10 minutes over but okay. rosa i would i just let people know that you're going to be talking at our safety connect conference next week um it's totally free to attend by the way everybody there's no cost to attendees we thank the exhibitors 
um, for fitting the bill for the whole thing. It's uh, really amazing. J.F. Shea, actually our title sponsor, dumped in a whole bunch of money to make sure that it's um, totally free for attendees. So I put the link in there if people wanted to register. And so you can, you're doing a keynote. So I wanted to share that with people too. And I, not often you get a free conference. Yeah. And if you're interested in learning more about this in depth, I am doing a master class. Uh, yeah. 10 sessions, three hours each. Uh, just, uh, you know, PM me. I think we're all connected. Do you have the link for that? I don't have it handy. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Orhan, for wishing me well. I didn't get to tell you the story, but it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of Safety View, Meet the Author. Rosa, it was a true pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you all for attending. <laughs> thank you. All righty. Take care, everyone. Tell your thank story. You.